Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hi, Paul Griffin's my name. I'm an infectious diseases physician and clinical microbiologist and I'm here to give you a quick update about Japanese encephalitis. I do have some disclosures but none of these are relevant to today's presentation so I'll skip through all of those. So. I'll start with some definitions. So an arbovirus is an arthropod-borne virus. So this is a virus transmitted by an arthropod vector, and of course, in this case, we'll be talking about mosquitoes. Um, Encephalitis uh, is inflammation of the brain, um, which is usually caused by infection, but there are other causes, and I'll touch on the differential diagnosis later on. And this comes from the word, uh, the Greek word uh, for brain, encephalos, and itis for inflammation. And the pronunciation has caused some some difficulties, uh, given all the discussion around this. We tend to go with the British pronunciation, which is encephalitis, as opposed to the American pronunciation. The actual organism we're talking about is an RNA virus. It's a single-stranded, plus-sense, enveloped RNA virus. There are some different genotypes, and interestingly, genotype 1 and 3 tend to cause summer epidemics in the northern temperate areas, and genotypes 2 and 4 tend to cause endemic disease in the southern tropical areas. It's a flavy virus, which comes from the Latin for yellow, uh, which is because yellow fever is, is one of these viruses, and that also includes dengue and Zika virus. But there's a JE subgroup, and this includes the very similar viruses of West Nile, St. Louis encephalitis virus, and some that are relevant for us here in Australia, particularly Kunjan and Murray Valley encephalitis virus. And this is the most important cause of epidemic encephalitis worldwide. It's actually been around for a long time. So first documented cases were in 1870s in Japan and it was labelled at the time a summer encephalitis. There was quite a sizeable outbreak in Japan in 1924 with around 6,000 cases and 3,000 recorded deaths in a short period of time and first isolated from a fatal human encephalitis case in 1935. Isolated from the mosquito vector shortly thereafter and then we saw uh, epidemics in China, Korea uh, and India so basically all across uh, Asia and Indian continents. Um, Immunisation started in South Korea not that long ago in 1983, and then a vaccine was available in the US, initially on an investigational basis, but then became more widespread and approved more formally thereafter. It tends to be endemic in temperate and tropical regions of Asia, and I'll show a map in more detail in a moment, uh, and is the main cause of viral encephalitis in many countries uh, in Asia. There's nearly 70,000 cases every year, with around 13,000 to 20,000 deaths recorded annually. And some countries have had major epidemics in the past, but have controlled primarily by vaccination and some measures to control the vector. And these countries include China, Korea, Japan, Taiwan and Thailand. And there are many countries that still have periodic epidemics including Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, India, etc. And according to the WHO, there are 24 countries in that Southeast Asia, Western Pacific region that have endemic JE virus transmission risk. And that puts about 3 billion people at risk at any one time. And here's a map in a little bit more detail showing that area around India and Asia where there is a a risk. And you can see the top of uh, Queensland is also highlighted there. And I'll talk more about uh, Australia in a moment. 
Our last locally acquired case was in 1998 uh, at the mouth of the, the Mitchell River. And interestingly, we'd actually seen the sentinel pigs in the Torres Strait begin to seroconvert some months before that case was identified. Th there was a boy diagnosed on Beidou Island, so not far away from, from Australia, of course. And then we started to see the virus in mosquitoes uh, at that location as well. Then the Australian case was diagnosed, and then we started to see more pigs uh, seroconverting around that time as well. And this was likely related to an outbreak in the Torres Strait that had been well documented around two years before. Um, and uh, contributing factors were thought to be prolific breeding of the vector in water bodies close to these communities um, and the fact that a lot of these households actually kept pigs. Um, and then this outbreak was actually thought to have originated from, from migratory birds or windblown mosquitoes from a, a focus of activity in the nearby PNG. And this virus has a, a fairly complex life cycle. So I'll go through this in a few different ways. So um, it, it's carried by largely migratory water birds, and I'll talk in some more detail about those, to mosquitoes, uh, Culex are the type of mosquitoes. Uh, it can then be passed to their offspring in that so-called transvarial transmission. And so this goes on happily without causing too many problems. But then when the mosquitoes infect an amplifying host, in this case pigs, uh, the viral load can get to quite high levels. And then it's mosquitoes that feed on these pigs that can transmit to humans. That are, they're often called accidental or dead end hosts. So I'll say this a few times, but it's important to point out that humans can't transmit it to each other and they can't even transmit it to other humans or animals through mosquitoes because we don't get a viral load that's sufficient to do that. You need that amplifying host. So we call this an enzootic cycle, so animals uh, are affected in a particular district or season is what that relates to. The vector is the Culex mosquito, particularly the females, and uh, there's a few uh, subspecies of uh, Culex that are, that are particularly uh, good at carrying this virus. And as I said, humans are a dead-end host, so we don't get the viremia required to be able to uh, support transmission. Um, and in actual fact, in humans, it actually rarely causes symptomatic disease, but I'll go through that in more detail. And the birds are an important part of that life cycle, so it's maintained in, in that mosquito, water bird, or mosquito, water bird, pig cycles. And these birds, particularly the wading water birds, such as herons and egrets, and they do migrate to warmer climates in winter, which again is how some of this uh, spread occurs. And in terms of animals, we have the pigs that are those amplifying hosts, get very high viral loads in the blood that, that facilitates uh, transmission. Uh, the adults typically show no signs of disease, although they can, but it's usually in pregnancy that we pick this up. So they're infected before pregnancy, they can uh, abort uh, or give birth to mummified or stillborn piglets. And so this is important that people who are, who are breeding pigs know about so they can alert appropriate authorities early if they start to see any of these issues. Horses are not uh, amplifying hosts to the same extent as pigs, but they can get similar disease. And in actual fact, it's been detected in a wide range of animal species, as you can see listed there. And so in terms of the transmission risk, it's important, I think, to understand that complex life cycle so we can intervene at a number of levels. So transmitted to humans from bites from those infected Culex mosquitoes. And these are less likely to be so-called container mosquitoes, like we see with Anopheles that uh, transmits dengue, for example. But they don't fly particularly long distances. So it's thought to be up to around 3 or 3.2 kilometres. So they, they are found near these uh, larger water so sources and typically uh, they mostly bite the birds, as I mentioned. And for animals to be bitten, you need to be in fairly close proximity to, to those water sources. And, and obviously to get infected, you need to have an amplifying host uh, in near, nearby proximity as well. So for humans to be infected, you need to be 
proximal to the water sources and those amplifying hosts. And given in Australia we're much less likely to have domestic pigs, although of course it does happen, you really need to be uh, near pig farms or, or areas where pigs are being processed. So in other words, it's a predominantly a, a rural or peri-urban uh, disease where humans live in proximity to these uh, appropriate amplifying hosts, the pigs, and also significant sources of water where the birds and mosquitoes uh, might be found. And if we look here just to show, uh, again, that same cycle is depicted here, but there are environmental and social determinants of transmission that I think are important to understand. I don't think the poverty element applies here, but certainly in terms of those environmental determinants, some of those issues might explain why we've seen the virus come back, and I'll touch on that again in a moment, but also some of those social determinants are also important to try and address that risk of transmission. And so why has it returned? And of course we don't know for sure, yet a lot of this is still being looked into, but it's likely that climate change has a role and, and so we see um, this can have an impact on mosquito vectors being able to invade higher elevations and latitudes and therefore spread further. And the, the current weather phenomenon we find ourselves in of La Nina, uh, which has been underway since uh, late November, resulting in heavy rainfall events for a long period of time, has also likely given um, the, the chance for the birds to spread further and also increased uh, vector breeding. So it's likely to be complicated, but uh, uh, it's still certainly being looked at. So how do we avoid getting infected? So vector avoidance is the, you know, the main way we prevent any vector-borne disease, and so there are a number of ways we can help with that. Chemical barriers, so particularly DEET, but also things like oil of lemon eucalyptus, for example. And I've shown a picture there of Bushman's, which is 40%, and often the, the strength can correlate with duration of protection. And also, of course, insecticide sprays, uh, things like mosquito coils and other ways of actually getting rid of the vector from indoor and outdoor environments. Physical barriers are important. Uh, clothing, long, light-coloured, loose-fitting clothing, footwear when outside, particularly dawn and dusk when biting, tends to be more intense. And also wherever you're staying, whether it be uh, homes or tents, ha having appropriate mosquito nets or screens in place to avoid the vector getting in. Th there are larger vector control measures such as spraying, um, particularly in breeding grounds, water sources, etc. Uh, in piggeries it's important to be uh, aware of some of these risks, reduce the mosquito burden in and around piggeries, address some of those water sources and obviously having early detection and reporting of suspected cases and vaccination as well which I'll touch on later on. We, we do a lot of surveillance for, for this infection. Um, it is a notifiable disease and I'll just show the, the numbers to show uh, exactly how small they've been. Um, this report is a, is a little bit dated. This is the most recent one but it does take a bit of time to compile. So this relates to the 2014-15 season. So there were over 12,000 notifications of mosquito-borne diseases, um, and this was a slight increase, but that only included three cases of Japanese encephalitis virus. And that was compared with a five-year mean of uh, one case, and they were all overseas acquired. So uh, Indonesia was the location that all three of those uh, infections were acquired. And if we look at that as a table here, that the second bottom row is Japanese encephalitis, and you can see the case numbers uh, are very low. You look at the five-year mean, uh, 0, 0 0.2, for example. So this is certainly not something that we see commonly imported uh, at that time. And this is just another table showing the, the cases from 2011 to 2016. Uh, and you can see there was only those nine cases over that period, uh, all of which were imported, mostly from I Indonesia and in a variety of, of age groups. So, yes, yeah, certainly was something that wasn't common in our country until this current event. And interestingly, I think the surveillance is, uh, is something that's interesting to know about. There's, there's a number of ways we can look for this virus to detect its presence. Sentinel pigs have been used, uh, and this is particularly in far north Queensland, Northern Territory and the Torres Strait. So you recall 
recall that's where that last uh, Australian case was and, and where we'd seen many outbreaks that potentially were related to that. We've also had sentinel chickens for a long time, um, particularly for other flaviviruses, particularly Murray Valley, uh, but they can also detect this virus. Uh, in 2001, there are actually quite a few flocks of sentinel chickens, although for a number of reasons we've replaced some of those uh, sentinel animal surveillance measures with, uh, with mosquito surveillance as it's uh, a bit easier. Obviously, it's hard to, to move those sentinel animals around, but we can uh, set up uh, ways of catching mosquitoes fairly readily. And so it has a broader reach as well. And, and our methods for detecting these viruses ha have improved, so it's actually much more feasible to use the mosquitoes instead of having to regularly bleed those animals to do serology. And just a quick map showing the, the extent uh, of the sentinel chicken flocks, and this is back in 2014-15. You can see there's actually quite a few around as a way of you know, detecting these viruses relatively early. And so in terms of the current situation, it's clearly uh, highly atypical. So this was declared a communicable disease incident of national significance on the 4th of March. And as of the 31st of March, there were 34 human cases of Japanese encephalitis virus acquired in Australia. 24 confirmed with definitive laboratory evidence. And you can see there New South Wales leading the way with 10, followed by Victoria, South Australia and Queensland. There were 10 probable cases. So this is people that have uh, epidemiological links, a high pretest probability, symptoms consistent with the disease and some laboratory suggestive evidence. So this is likely some serology that's yet to be or was unable to be confirmed, for example. But almost certainly these actually represent true cases and you can see there South Australia had five of these, Queensland two, Victoria two and New South Wales one and unfortunately three deaths, one in each of New South Wales, South Australia and Victoria. So of course while not common it certainly is significant enough that it's wise that we take some measures to try and address and I'll go through that in some detail later on. In terms of the clinical picture it has a relatively short incubation like most of these flaviviruses, very similar time frames, four to fourteen days is mostly quoted and most most infections are mild. So this is where we can be very reassuring of our patients that most people that get infected have uh, no to, to few symptoms. Those that do get symptomatic, often it's a fever and a headache like a lot of these other flaviviruses. Children can actually interestingly have some gastrointestinal symptoms, so vomiting uh, and pain may be dominant initial symptoms. And this is where the important facts come in that approximately one in 100 to one in 250 people actually do progress to quite severe disease. Now the risk here is actually higher in children and the elderly. And what we're seeing in our country is different to those countries where it's endemic, because in those countries most children are exposed early, whereas here we've obviously had nobody exposed uh, relatively. Uh, and so most adults in those endemic countries have natural immunity following childhood infection, whereas that's not the case, of course, in our country. And the more severe disease is often characterised by rapid onset, high fever, severe headache, and often associated with other features of uh, encephalitis, neck stiffness, disorientation, and then other neurological issues including coma, seizures and paralysis and the fatality of the case fatality rate of the more severe consequences can be as high as 30 per cent and unfortunately also about a third of those who recover are left with some permanent intellectual, behavioural or neurological consequence such as paralysis or seizure or other neurological issues. So it can be significant in those people that rarely progress to severe disease. I think it's important to consider a broad differential. So if we talk about the syndrome of fever with neurological symptoms, differential diagnosis of, uh, is of course broad. Infection is probably the most likely and we can break that down into bacterial, viral and other uh, infectious diseases and there's a long list of non-infectious causes 
causes as well, where, you know, of course, a thorough history and consideration of epidemiology will come in. In terms of the infectious uh, causes, bacterial, uh, Neisseria meningitis, strep pneumo, uh, listeria for people that are at risk, the elderly, for example, viral causes in our country, even with the return of Japanese encephalitis virus, HSV would still be uh, the most common cause of that more severe syndrome. Enterovirus, perhaps more common than HSV, but less likely to cause such a severe syndrome. Those other flaviviruses, particularly Murray Valley and Cephalitis virus, if you're in the right areas, also needs to be considered, as does, for example, tuberculosis and, and, and cryptococcus, uh, if the epidemiology suggests that's a possibility. So in terms of the diagnosis, we would often diagnose this by serology or detection of antibodies in the, in the CSF. So a lumbar puncture, of course, would be required. And so with the CSF, we often see those IgM antibodies detectable from, from quite early. But of course, as with all infectious diseases, the failing of IgM is it takes a few days for that to be generated to sufficient levels. So often detectable three to eight days after onset they can persist for quite a long time. So the presence of an IgM doesn't necessarily equate, uh, strictly speaking, with recent infection because they can persist for uh, even up to around three months and even longer. Um, and of course, this virus won't be detected in those standard CSF panels that we rely on. So you do need to consider this if the epidemiology supports it and request this specifically. And as always, the more information on the request form, the more the laboratories can help you with that diagnosis. Uh, most laboratories will have serology available. Often it will be listed in their test list as arbovirus or flavivirus serology. Of course, if you write Japanese encephalitis, the right test will still be done. And serum collected within 10 days of onset still might not have that detectable IgM. So an IgM that's negative early is not an exclusion in terms of the, the differential. So you do need to, like all serology, do acute and convalescent samples. Um, and, and of course, there is cross-reactivity with the other flaviviruses and the other infections. So confirmatory testing is typically performed and, and does vary from laboratory to laboratory. Of course, PCR is something we rely on very heavily these days to diagnose viruses. It is available. It's highly specific but fairly poorly sensitive, so positive around 25% of the time in CSF. Even worse in terms of doing that on the serum can be positive but pretty unreliable. Some studies have shown it can be detected on throat swabs, not something we do routinely necessarily but can be considered. And of course you do need to do that PCR very early on, often only in the first few days it, it can be detected. And of course you do need to consider those differentials that I mentioned before. So on your uh, cerebral spinal fluid, glucose protein, uh, microscopic culture sensitivity and a multiplex PCR depending on, on what your local laboratory offers. And imaging is often likely done as well for consideration of some of those broader differentials. No specific therapy uh, is available, but we're pretty good at providing supportive therapy to manage people through this, particularly those with the most severe manifestations. Need to consider HSV, of course, and given we have an excellent therapy for that that is quite time critical, often we'd recommend uh, commencing that while the investigations are, are done and, and pending. And typically we'd also recommend some antibiotics. Of course, depends on the clinical presentation and, and the pretest probability, but unless you're very confident that it's not a bacterial uh, meningitis, I'd recommend commencing those antibiotics, particularly keftriaxone, vancomycin, possibly uh, amoxicillin or ampicillin if there's a listeria risk, but commencing those while you wait for the results of the lumbar puncture to exclude those bacterial causes. So vaccination uh, is something that's going to be very important, of course, and a little bit complicated when, when it comes to Japanese encephalitis. Seven vaccines licensed globally, two of those available in Australia, Imagev and Jespect, and I'll talk about those in some detail. Imagev is by Sanofi. That's a live attenuated vaccine uh, registered for use uh, in children from nine months of age and older, um, and some 
tricky bits about uh, a booster, so I'll go through that. So children nine months to 18 years uh, need a booster after one to two years. Uh, adults don't typically require a booster. Very high efficacy, fortunately, 94% from that single dose. Uh, and provides protection probably for five years or even longer. Uh, and so this is perhaps the preferred vaccine, but does have those considerations for a live attenuated vaccine and that's challenging to give to people who are pregnant or significantly immunocompromised. And so because we have another option in those, people would recommend uh, Gespect, a Sequeris product. This is an inactivated vaccine, so it's not live. And this is registered for use in people over 18 years of age, but can be used down to two months of age with appropriate consideration. This is two doses, 28 days apart. Boosters are also recommended because protection is, is less um, in terms of duration, so probably around one to two years, but a similarly high efficacy from the two doses, of course, of 96%. And this is some tables from the Australian Immunisation Handbook. I've got the link for this at the end because this is a very useful resource that is updated quite regularly. So you can see from two months to 18 years, GESPEC, two doses, 28 days apart, no booster recommendation um, and uh, some dosing issues there. Uh, nine months to 18 years, you can use Imagev as that single dose with a booster at one to two years after the primary dose, particularly if there's ongoing risk. Um, and if you look at uh, the over 18s, you've got those two options there. Uh, Imagev is that one dose, no booster, uh, and the long persistence, likely greater than five years, whereas with GESPEC, two doses, 28 days apart, boosters required if you remain someone who's at risk. There is the option for an accelerated course. Uh, if that's the vaccine that's, uh, that's used uh, and people do need protection quickly, there is a way of doing that. And so in terms of the recommendations, and, and this comes from the, um, the, the CDNA, and again, I've got a link there. They're the ones that are providing advice on vaccination here. Priority groups uh, are those who work at, reside, or have planned non-deferrable visits to a piggery, and you can see there that who, who's listed, or people that are processing pork products, so pork abattoirs or pork rendering plants, people that work there or visit there regularly particularly, are perhaps the highest risk, and they're the ones that are being prioritised. People who work with the mosquitoes, so this might be those people involved in the surveillance, uh, collecting, trapping mosquitoes, or maybe managing them by spraying or applying other control measures. Um, and so those people are also recommended to be vaccinated. And of course, people who may be working in laboratories where, where the virus is, is present. And so because of this new threat, um, Australia has very fortunately announced a comprehensive management program, a $69 million response announced about a month ago. And you can see that the types of responses are listed here that are considering all of those risks and ways to address them. So nearly $30 million for vaccines, and at the moment uh, they are in short supply, so, so that's why it's a fairly constrained list of who they're recommended for. Uh, nearly $20 million uh, in terms of uh, mosquito surveillance and control activities. 10 million uh, in terms of uh, the state and territory agriculture departments uh, in their response, including, again, surveillance and control measures. Uh, 5 million in public health communication. Of course, we want to get these messages out so, so people know how they can protect themselves, people know who's eligible for the vaccines, for example. Uh, surveillance activity is also funded there, uh, and laboratory capacity for testing also features in that response. So I think that's a very comprehensive plan that will certainly put us in a, in a good position. So just to sum up, so Japanese encephalitis virus is rare. 
Uh, it's not going to be the next pandemic. It doesn't spread like COVID, and I think people need to hear some of that messaging. But it is potentially serious and, and obviously can cause viral encephalitis. Uh, while not new, the current situation is atypical. We've had 34 locally acquired cases when the last locally acquired case was in 1998. And we still don't fully understand why that is, but there's likely to be at least a contribution by climate change as well as the current weather phenomenon resulting in increased rainfall and the impact that that has had on the, the birds as well as the vector mosquitoes. Complex life cycle, but it's important to have a basic understanding of that so that we can come up with a comprehensive plan to mitigate that risk both at a national level, as you saw on the preceding slide, but also in terms of talking to your patients about avoiding vectors, etc. We do have great vaccines available, but the supply is limited. That's part of that comprehensive plan. Um, and while we're not likely to see many cases, awareness is really important, I think, to facilitate appropriate counselling, to avoid vectors and reduce the risk where it's relevant, and I guess to provide reassurance to those people that are concerned outside of those areas as well. We want to make sure we get the vaccine to those at greatest risk. Um, and we also want to make sure we diagnose this rapidly and effectively, uh, but also manage the, uh, the appropriate differential diagnosis at the time as well. And, and as with any infectious disease, support is available. This is a lot to take in for, for people out there in the community at the moment that are still managing a, the complex issue of COVID and we have to be mindful of the flu this year. We're adding another infectious disease in the mix now that people need to be mindful of. So of course you can get support from your local infectious diseases service, as well as the public health units and, and clinical microbiology that work in the laboratories that you might use. So, so there is support out there for, for further information if you need it. And I've just included some, some links to, to some of the really useful sites there. Federal Government is providing some up-to-date information regularly. The CDNA uh, also provides advice, particularly around vaccination. The Immunisation Handbook is a really good resource for that as well. And I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.